three congregations joining as one, celebrating Pentecost. Um, one key change obviously wasn't enough for Pentecost. Um, we, we went for three key changes, right? Trinitarian, one for the Father, one for the Son, and a final big one for the Holy Spirit. We were already standing, because if anyone had been seated at that point, you would have stood for the key change, no doubt. Um, so two things, I guess, on my heart to share this evening. One um, is a farewell from B&I um, and some closing reflections. Um, we're going on sabbatical for three months. So this isn't a proper goodbye. Um, we'll be back in three months, ready for the next decade of life here at KXC. Um, so, so this is some closing reflections, but far more importantly than closing reflections. This is Pentecost Sunday. So I want to do justice to what we're celebrating today. So if you've got a Bible, Acts chapter 2, I'm just going to start there and and then launch from there. So this is the account of the first Pentecost, um, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Three congregations coming together as one. That's a nice touch for today. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, all of them. Not just a few. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Um, I want to zoom in on one phrase. That when it was Pentecost, they were all together in one place. Is that a random thing? Why were they all together in one place? So to understand why they were gathering together in Jerusalem, like the nerve center of the Jewish community, um, you need to know the story um, that the Jewish community were celebrating year in, year out through their festivals. Um, Some of you will have heard me use this as a kind of brief summary of the Exodus narrative, the story that defines the nation of Israel. Um, They were in Egypt, slaves in Egypt for 400 years oppressed. Um, But then God raises up Moses, a liberator, and he leads them out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. They then begin a 40-year journey through the wilderness. Then you have another climactic moment, um, the first one being the Red Sea. Um, The second one is Moses ascending Mount Sinai and God and Israel entering into this covenant relationship and God giving Moses and the nation of Israel the law, the Torah, like the Ten Commandments, which were a pathway to human flourishing because God liberated them from Egypt, but liberated them for this promised land, this place of abundance where they could live um, in communion with him. So that's, oh, there we go. My slides broke, but they're back up on the screen. Um, I'm going to fly solo on the slides then because I don't trust the connection. So give me one second, um, we're back in the game. So they ascend Mount Sinai, enter into covenant relationship with God, um, and then they journey with God through the wilderness. God provides manna, like bread from heaven, to sustain them on the journey. And then Moses hands the baton over to Joshua, who leads them into the promised land. Now that's a summary of the story, but there's two moments in the story that every year are celebrated through the feasts. And here they are, Passover and Pentecost, let's say it together. Passover and Pentecost. There we go. Just get it into the mind. Um, So Passover is the moment where the angel of death, if you know the story, passed over the houses of the Jewish community so they could begin this journey out of Egypt. So they celebrate the Passover and they celebrate the Pentecost. Pente means 50 days after Passover. um, They celebrate the giving of the law. In other words, these two poles are about liberation from Egypt, liberation for life in all its fullness, life in the kingdom of God, liberation, living, liberation, living, Passover and Pentecost. 
Now, when you get to the New Testament, knowing that the Jewish community had these rhythms of celebrating freedom from and freedom for, it's fascinating that the accounts of Jesus' death, um, on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered with his friends to celebrate Passover, to celebrate Passover. In other words, when a whole nation were gathering to remember their story, that they were once enslaved, but God stepped in and did the miraculous and liberated them so they could live life fully in the promised land. And they were celebrating that as a kind of prophetic way of reminding themselves, God, here we are in the first century under Roman oppression. Our temple system has been fully corrupted. Lord, what you've done before, would you do it again? Would you do it again? So they're celebrating Passover Jesus gathers with his friends knowing that whilst they're celebrating this kind of Passover week, he's going to die and he's going to rise again to liberate them, not from Egypt, but from all sin, all sickness, all darkness, all oppression, from death itself in order that they might experience abundance. So you have the cross and the resurrection, sort of the Easter season replacing like that Passover feast. And then 50 days later, when the Jewish community were gathering to celebrate the gift of the law, this pathway to human flourishing, whilst they're celebrating Pentecost, everyone gathering to look back. Lord, we thank you for the law, that you entered into covenant relationship with us. You gave us a pathway so that we might thrive as they're celebrating living like really living, that's when the Spirit is poured out upon them. Passover, Pentecost, liberation from, liberation for. Um, and they suddenly realize that fullness of life isn't found through obedience to the Ten Commandments, obedience to the Torah. In this new covenant brought about through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, in this new covenant, fullness of life is found in the Spirit. Right? And that's why churches across the globe are gathering today to celebrate life, to celebrate party. Kids are going to be dancing and celebrating. There's going to be three key changes happening in churches across the land. Because like we've been saved from, and that's good news, but it's better than that. We've been saved for life in all its fullness. Now the backdrop of our feasting is cultural chaos. We always need to remember that. That as we're feasting and celebrating and partying, we know that in our communities and amongst our friends and in our families, there's a huge amount of uncertainty and anxiety. There's mourning, there is grief, there is pain everywhere. So we're not ignoring that. We're not feasting to escape the world. We're feasting for the sake of the world. And Psalm 23 is a great reminder. You pre prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's life in the kingdom of God. We're, we're surrounded, but we realize that God has invited us to feast at his table, to celebrate fullness while there's cultural chaos around us. So I'm entitling this talk, Feasting for the Sake of the World. Partying, if you like, for the sake of the world. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says um, in the New Testament that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, there's a, a wedding, if you like, a marriage of the apostolic gift, and the apostles are the ones that build towards the future. Um, but there's a marriage that takes place between the apostolic and the prophetic. The gift of the prophetic, prophets see what the Lord is doing. They, they see what is, is happening, what the Spirit is, is doing in our midst. So when you have this marriage, 
marriage of the prophetic and the apostolic. The prophets see what's happening and the apostles build towards it, right? Every healthy church has these gifts in constant interplay. The prophets speaking what they sense the Spirit doing. The apostles with humility saying, I don't see that, but great. If, if that's what you really believe and if I'm using my discernment right, then great, let's build towards it. So the prophetic needs to be constantly asking the question, what is the Spirit doing right now in the church um, and in the culture around? And this is my sense. It's about inviting the church to a season of joy and to a season of feasting. Like as I listen to the prophets, one of the ways you listen to what the prophets are saying is you listen to the songs that we're singing right now. Because a lot of our, our songwriters are essentially prophets. They're spending time in the presence of God trying to discern what the Lord is up to. Um, so as you listen to the songs that we're singing, you, you get a heads up um, to what's happening in the church right now. So I thought we'd do a little game. Um, I'm really pumped about this. You might not be. Um, but I'm going to sing a line, and I want you to sing back the line that follows. Um, and don't leave me hanging. I know some people here don't like kind of like congregational participation. Um, but just push that to one side for one minute. I'm going to sing a line, and you sing it back at me, right? If you don't know the line, just mumble. Just pretend that you're singing, um, and no one will know. Um, are you ready for this? Yeah. That's not enough. Are you ready for this? Yeah. I'll raise a hallelujah. In the love it one more time. I'll raise a hallelujah. I'll raise a hallelujah. And I'll raise a hallelujah. It's lovely, wasn't it? It was lovely. Just needed a guitar, and then I'd have been living the dream. Living the dream. Okay, so, so what's the message coming through there? That yes, there may be a backdrop of cultural chaos, but what is our response in the midst of that? It's to choose joy. It is to choose joy, the discipline of choosing joy in the presence of our enemies, raising a glass, feasting, not as a way of escaping the world, but feasting for the sake of the world. Here's another song that I love right now. It may look like I'm surrounded, but... And it may look like I'm surrounded, but... And this is our, and this is our, there's more in you, there's more in you. This is our, uh, awkward ending, I love that. I thought I'd just let that hang. No, no one knows how to finish that refrain. Um, here's the thing about that, that chorus. The best bit about the chorus is the verse, um, but most churches just bypass the verse. Um, and the problem with bypassing the verse, the verse explains the chorus and, and the refrain that follows. A lot of people will be walking into churches singing this song thinking, I love this. Just how do we fight the battles? I know we keep singing, this is how. I mean, we're talking headlock and a kind of like, I mean, how do we do this? I've seen it in the community, but like, how, how do you fight the battles here? Um, this is how we fight the battles. There's a table that you've prepared for me in the presence of my enemies. It's your body and your blood you've shed for me. And this is how I fight my battles. My weapon is praise and thanksgiving. This is how I fight my battles. Uh, th this is essentially, again, lifted straight from Psalm 23. The way we engage in warfare as the church, because we fight differently to the way of the world, the way we engage in warfare is we feast in the kingdom of God. We gather together and we feast and we celebrate. We choose joy. It's a discipline, right? We choose joy. We raise a glass. We raise our hallelujah. Not as a way of escaping the world. We feast for the sake of the world. Here's another beautiful one. Walking around these walls. I thought by now they'd fall, but you've never failed me yet. Wait for change to come, knowing the battle's won. 
through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of, of the Spirit, the victory is secure, for you've never failed me yet. And then we launch into the course with a number of key changes. I've seen you move, you've moved the mountains. And I believe we'll see you do it again. We feast against a backdrop of cultural turmoil. Like Brexit's going on. There's going to be elections upon us very soon. We see it in the communities. We experience it in our workplaces. Financial insecurity, relational insecurity. It's all around us. What is our response? And the answer is to raise a glass. Why? We raise a glass to celebrate that God is still on his throne. Right? He's still on his throne. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. His promises, they will come to pass. There will be an outpouring of the Spirit. He will heal the land. He will bring a revival to this nation. He will make all things new. Do you believe it? Like this is happening. This is what the prophets are naming in this moment. The Spirit of God is at work. We see the signs of it, like small signs, like to take the story from Kings. We, we see a cloud the size of a man's fist, but we believe a heavy rain is coming. So what's our response? We raise our glasses and we celebrate. Like we, we to prepare for abundance in, in a season where we see anything but that. So we're feasting for the sake of the world. And I want to give five encouragements for how we might feast in this season. Number one, um, we come to the table empty. We come to the table empty. I shared some of these reflections at Wildfires. So for those at Wildfires, this will be fairly familiar, some of these thoughts. But let's go with it anyway. Um, So 2 Kings chapter 4. Let me read you this passage. Um, I genuinely believe this passage is like a prophetic pointer, a prophetic story of the cultural moment we find ourselves in, right? Um, Since this podcast, by the way, this cultural moment podcast, have you noticed that we can't preach without using that phrase, this cultural moment? All the time, it's in the back of my mind with an American accent. So this story is a prophetic sign of the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Um, So let's read it. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. So that's the context. She is panicking. Like this is more than just uncertainty. She's terrified about the well-being of her two sons. So she's in grief. She's absolutely in grief, in a state of mourning. But more than that, like serious anxiety and panic about the next generation, her sons. Like I know the parents in the room feel this, but I'm sure many others do. Like you see your kids in the younger generation and it is terrifying. Like the level of addiction to the iPhone, um, some of the knife crime and gang culture that's emerging and all the challenges that they're facing. Um, And you're like, oh my goodness, this is like, I'm worried about the generation coming through. That's kind of what's going on in this story. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for a few, then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into all the jars. As each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. In other words, this is an act of obedience. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, the prophet, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live off what is left. 
Like this is an incredible story of a woman choosing faith, right? Living by faith and not by sight. As she looks around, there's poverty everywhere. She's freaking out about the well-being of her sons. She doesn't know what to do, but the prophet says, you are to prepare for abundance. You are to prepare for a feast. I know you can see in the natural poverty everywhere, but prepare for abundance. What if God was saying that to the church? I know as you look around the state of the church in this nation, as you look around the community, as you, you know, cast your eye on what's happening in the culture, it may feel like lack, but I'm telling you, prepare for abundance. Bring every empty vessel you have and be open to the oil of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, filling each empty vessel. Like what if we took that mindset today? We're going to bring everything we've got and say, God, fill the entirety of my being with your presence. I want to prepare myself for abundance. Like that's, that's partly what B&I are planning for our sabbatical. You've heard me say this, that we're 10 years into ministry. And when we began the story 10 years ago, um, we really felt God speaking to us through Philippians chapter 2, this epic hymn about Christ Jesus. It says that Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped hold of, snatched hold of. Rather, he made himself nothing. Greek verb kenosis, meaning to empty himself. He emptied himself um, and took on human flesh. Um, And then a few verses later, Paul highlights, hey, I'm trying to follow the way of Jesus. And the language he uses, he says, I've poured myself out for your sake, for the sake of the church in Philippi. I've poured myself out like a drink offering. And this is where we got the language of recklessly giving ourselves away. We just stole it from Philippians 2. It's plagiarism, but we did it anyway. Um, And we're like, we want to be that kind of church, following the way of Jesus, holding nothing back, emptying ourselves. We want to be like the Apostle Paul, who poured himself out for the sake of the church in Philippi, experiencing unbelievable life. And over the last 10 years, um, we've done it imperfectly because we're imperfect leaders, but we've sought to pour ourselves out in worship to God. In community, by just building friendships and loving people over a long period of time. Um, But also on the mission field, for those outside the church, we've poured ourselves out. We've given everything, right? We've made massive, massive mistakes along the journey, mainly B. Um, That's obviously a joke. Um, We we made massive mistakes on the journey. Um, But 10 years in, we're empty. We're empty. And, And I relate to this story of this woman thinking, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I've been going to the equivalent of prophetic figures. Um, Elisha wasn't around, so I found some other guys. And just said, look, I'm empty. I don't even know what to do. Like, uh, in the last six months, I cannot tell you how hard it's been at times. Leading when you feel so fragile, so empty, um, but trusting God each step of the way. And yet I feel like God's been saying, um, I know it feels like this is a season of poverty, but you were to prepare for abundance. You were to prepare for abundance. Um, And then a few weeks ago, Pete James um, invited people at KXC, did they want to give financially um, a gift towards our sabbatical so that we can rest well and have an amazing holiday? Um, An amazing gift was given. Um, We have booked flights. We've got holidays in place. We're going to take the kids to Chessington. We're going to do all sorts of fun things. Um, But I, I believe for us, that was a little prophetic point of like you were even worried about how you're going to afford all the things on sabbatical his abundance because you might see poverty you might see lack but you were to prepare for a feast at the table of God I, I believe that's what God is saying not just to be and I for this season but to this church like don't look around and panic look up and get ready for a party it may look like there's poverty around but we are to prepare for abundance we are to prepare for 
abundance. Um, and as a sign of this, um, a month ago, maybe less than a month ago, we started the All In campaign. We felt God was saying to us as a church, essentially this same message, prepare for move the spirit. There's stuff stirring. Um, there was an 80 grand deficit on this current financial year. So we were slightly panicking about that. Um, so there was anxiety and uncertainty. And yet God was saying, get ready. There's going to be an outpouring. There's ministry stirring. There are church plants you need to get ready for. And it's like, God, here's the finances. Here's the vision. It was as if God's saying, prepare for abundance. Do you remember? Um, all in Sunday. Um, so we cast the vision that we wanted to raise 250000 between May and September. We thought we'll give ourselves a good period of time to do this. Um, and the money kept coming in. Like people were recklessly generous, pouring themselves out in worshipping community and mission, um, using their wallets to do so. Um, and as of this last week, here you go, 270000 Isn't that amazing? And that is the budget we'll be using for our sabbatical. And we, and we are going to burn. No. So, so we're on our second way round. It's, I mean, we're only early June. We're on our second way round the dial. We could put, you know, you know, take the foot off the gas and think, great, job done now. Um, but what if God was saying, no, prepare for abundance? Like, if you haven't had an opportunity to give right now, um, I just want to encourage you, why not give? Like, the more that's invested, the more that we can invest in, in kingdom initiatives here in King's Cross and, and far beyond. More church plants and compassion ministries and enterprise and whatever else. I just want to encourage you, like, bring every empty vessel. That's what Elisha said. Like, you should go into the community, find every single vessel you can find, bring it to the house and start pouring the oil in. Like the oil is still flowing, right? Let's bring everything we've got. Um, as you look into the middle of the dial, um, you'll see that the two dials that we want to work on now as part of this All In campaign, 38% serve on Sundays and only 27% serve in our Compassion Ministries. Like for, for a generation, many in the room will be millennials, for a generation that cares about the poor. I know every generation cares, but like there's a justice drive in the millennial generation that is beautiful, right? There's this longing to break this gap between rich and poor. Like next Sunday with Shane Claiborne, is going to be an absolute treat. But what matters is what we're actually going to do. Not what we confess with our lips. That's really important. But we need to actually sort of bring life to that. 27% um, serving. I think we can do more than that. Like, what if every single person thought, do you know what, I'm going to pick up a surf flyer and I'm going to get plugged in. I'm, I'm going to move against the flow of this city where consumerism, like, wins. And I'm going to say, screw consumerism. I'm going to follow the way of Jesus. Like, washing people's feet isn't glamorous, but it transforms lives. I, I'm going to serve because that is the way of the kingdom. Not just the way into the kingdom, it's the way of the kingdom. I'm going to choose the posture of a servant. Um, so I just want to encourage you, as part of the All In campaign, we're celebrating financial giving. What if we all put our time and energy and chose to serve? Um, I think it would bring transformation to this part of the city. So come empty. Secondly, come thirsty. This is John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, a um, little bit of context before that. This is another festival. The Jewish community loved their festivals. Um, this is another one, the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. They would gather once a year in the temple courts again, and they were remembering the story of when God tabernacled, like dwelt amongst them on their journey through the wilderness before they got to the promised land. So every year they'd celebrate, God, you're the kind of God that doesn't stay at a safe distance. You would choose to live in a tent. You'd camp, literally camp. Um, you would camp with us and lead us um, to the fulfillment of the promises. And we love 
love you, God, that that's the kind of God you are. And on the final day of this seven-day feast, um, they would meet in the temple courts. They would gather some big jars. They would march down the temple mount. At the bottom of the temple mount, there was a pool called the Pool of Siloam. They would fill up the jars. They would march back up the mountain, um, temple mount, and then they would pour the water on the altar in the temple. And the water would flow from the temple back down the mountain. And it was basically a way of saying, God, we're holding on to a promise. Ezekiel chapter 47, and there was this promise that a river would flow out of the temple, bringing devastating kingdom life wherever it goes. And in this vision, the river actually flows into the Dead Sea. It's called that for a reason, because everything there is dead. You can't fish there because there's no life there. And in the vision, this river brings life to the Dead Sea and everyone starts fishing. So every year they would do this ceremony as a way of saying, God, would the river flow? Like these Roman people are pressing us. We want to be free to worship you with the river flow. So Jesus, on the last and greatest day of the festival, stood in a loud voice. In other words, to sort of like speak over the commotion. He says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Probably been an awkward moment like that too. Of like, what? Stuart, who's this guy? What's happening? Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Then he says this, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, in other words, Ezekiel 47, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Notice the language, not just flow to them, they will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, which we celebrate at the Pentecost, whom those who believed in him were later to receive, right? So Jesus basically says, if you want this river to flow into your community, if you want this river to transform your family, if you want this river to flow into your neighborhood and your workplace, if you want to see cultural renewal, if you want to see a revival in this nation, the best thing you can do is come to Jesus and drink. Like, come to me if you're thirsty, because the river will flow to you. But more than that, the promise is actually the river will flow through you and bring life wherever it goes. Like, this is the invitation of Jesus saying, for the sake of the world, drink. Like, bring your thirst to me. Come to the table. Feast at the table. Drink deeply for the sake of the world. So come empty. Come thirsty. Thirdly, get ready. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. In other words, we haven't come to Jesus when we've been thirsty. We, we've gone to other supplies of, of, of liquids. They've forsaken me. I was going to say alcohol, but it could be any. Anyway, um, the spring of living water. And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Essentially, we've, we've turned away from this living water that we know that brings life to us and life through us. And we found other sources, other wells to drink from. And we all know this. When you drink dirty water, you get the runs, right? We've all had that experience. Like a holiday where you're like, no, 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 I back myself. Tap water's fine. Thanks so much. No, I want to save a bit of money. Tap water's fine. Um, and then you know about that tap water and then later that night you know about it. When you drink dirty water, you get the runs. That would be a paraphrase, the message translation of Jeremiah. Um, and, and this has been a season for us as a church of actually repentance, um, the Greek word repentance, metanoia, means to turn around. We regularly say that, but the Hebrew word for repentance actually means to come home, to come home. So the, the New Testament image of repentance is the prodigal son. He turns around, that's metanoia. But what does he then do? He comes home, right? Um, and what happens when he comes home? There's a massive feast. 
because there's always feasting in the kingdom of God, right? Like repentance is part of our feasting. We basically say, Jesus, we haven't been drinking from you, the living water. We've been drinking from other wells and we've got the runs. And, And Lord, we repent. We come home. We come to you. The culture's in a mess. I believe that because of misdirected worship. Misdirected loves, as Pete James loves to say, misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives, right? Misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. Um, So let me just walk you through Romans chapter one, which I think is a beautiful diagnosis of the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Um, So this is is the Apostle Paul speaking into the, the situation in Rome in the first century. And he's basically saying what you're experiencing in the culture is judgment. And I know we don't talk about judgment, um, but we should talk about it. I think what we're experiencing in the culture right now is judgment. That might sound heavy, but let me explain judgment on biblical terms, as Paul does in Romans 1. So Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And this is there's four steps to the process by which a culture or an individual finds himself in a mess. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. That's when things went wrong, right? Um, When we stop worshipping God. So the culture spirals into chaos. Decreation would be a helpful way of putting that. Um, Spirals into chaos when we stop worshipping God. Um, This is actually a massive thing. This is why gratitude is is of critical importance. um, That we keep the connection between us and God through worshipping Him. So they stopped worshipping God. What happened next? Um, It says their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Step two, they became hard-hearted. As soon as you stop being grateful to God... Yeah, you disconnect yourself from God and you experience hardness of heart. If you don't want to thrive in this city, here's my advice to you, harden your heart. Follow the way of the cynics. Um, That's how you struggle. If you want to thrive, you need to go in the opposite direction. Now, cynicism, as Kath said brilliantly last week, is different to skepticism. Skepticism wants to ask all the difficult questions because they're hungry for truth. The cynics have a posture of unbelief. They're not interested. They harden their heart to their communities, to their loved ones. They harden their hearts to God, right? So what happens? You stop worshipping God. You develop a hard heart. Number three, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, number three is you start worshipping the gods of the surrounding nations. You start chasing after sex and money and power and reputation and success in the workplace and the, and the list goes on. You basically misdirect your love. It used to be towards Jesus, seeking first the kingdom of God. And they're like, okay, oh, she's nice or he's nice or that paycheck looks great. And you chase the wrong things, right? When you stop worshipping God, you don't stop worshipping. You just find something else to worship. So stop worshiping God. Become hard-hearted. This is what Paul is saying. Then you start worshiping the gods of the surrounding nations. Number four, and this is the judgment piece. Therefore God gave them over. Greek word paradidonai. It means literally to hand over. God basically says, I gave you free will. I'm not a control freak. I gave you the option to love me, to drink from this well that brings life, or to turn from me and to feast at other tables. But if you choose to feast at other tables, I'm going to hand you over. I'm going to allow you to live with the consequences of those decisions. If you drink dirty water, you will get the runs. And this is why we regularly quote C.S. Lewis, who said, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Like when you turn to other tables, when you drink other, from other sources, you're going to experience pain, you're going to experience heartbreak. What is the remedy? The remedy is worship. It's to sing a little louder 
to basically turn around, to come home and say, God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to seek you first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else will be thrown into. So come empty, come thirsty, get ready, draw close. Um, John 15 verse 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Um, this is the challenge for us in this season, to come close to Jesus. We live in a culture that idolizes productivity. We live in a church culture that idolizes success and fruitfulness. We chase fruit and we incrementally distance ourselves from the vine. And I just want to be really honest, like 10 years into this um, story, um, there have been seasons in the story where I've been fascinated by fruitfulness and success and growing the church. And every time I've set my gaze upon fruitfulness, I found myself distant from the vine. That, that is one of the reasons, um, B and I going on sabbatical, to flush the uh, idol of success from the system. We are choosing to step out of this environment, London, which idolizes like success and productivity, and we're going to plonk ourselves in the wilderness in California. Um, no, <laughs> well, we, we actually will, but metaphorically, in the wilderness. And, and in the wilderness, we're basically saying, because it's going to be our own form of repentance, God, I'm so sorry. Like I turn around and come home. Like... I don't want to be that kind of leader that is leading something fruitful, but inwardly feels far from God. I've met those leaders and there's a hollowness to their leadership. I don't want to be that guy. B and I don't want to be that couple. So we, we are stepping out of the limelight and we're going to step into the wilderness um, where we're going to experience like this kind of emptying and the vulnerability of that. And we're going to say, God, our highest priorities, we want to draw close to the vine. I, I love this prayer. This is um, Exodus 33. Well, it's not really a prayer, but it essentially is. Moses and God have this conversation. Um, and God says, look, I'm not going to go to the promised land with you. You clearly don't want a relationship with me. You keep rejecting me and worshipping idols. And Moses says, no, 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 you have to go with us. If you don't go with us, like, don't send us to that place. What else will distinguish us from all the other people groups on the face of the earth if your presence doesn't go with us? And Moses essentially says to God, God, here's the deal. And I'm going to put it really bluntly. I'd rather be in the wilderness with you than in the promised land without you. Now, I just want you to grab the weight of that. He's basically saying, I would rather not have all of my dreams come to pass. Everything I've been longing for. I'd rather put that all to one side and be in this dump, this arid, dry land, but have your presence because your presence brings life. That's an amazing prayer. Like that's the prayer that, that B and I will be praying is, Lord, we choose first you. Because where your presence is, when, when you're close to the vine, fruitfulness is a guarantee. Like Jesus promises you will be fruitful. But if you chase after the fruit, um, you distance yourself from the vine. This is Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5. This would be my request if you're going to pray for B and I, um, and you should do, by the way. Um, half joking. Um, that This would be your prayer. There's this um, verse in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5. Um, and it's a metaphor for Israel who've run away from God. Yeah, find themselves distant from God. And, and then there's this beautiful return. It's actually a really sexy story. Um, it's a book about sex. But anyway, that's another sermon. Um, it says, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? It's just a picture of Israel coming out of exile. Who's this actually coming out of exile, limping and in pain, but totally dependent on God? I think B and I, we would be happy to come back from sabbatical, like more fragile, 
more weak if we knew that we were more dependent on the Spirit, like more strong in Christ. So we're going into the wilderness to say, God, it's, it's you or nothing else. Like, I don't want to do this without your presence. And my encouragement would be pursue that yourself. Pursue that yourself. A final thing then is, is be filled. So come empty, come thirsty, get ready, draw close, be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They will be filled. There we go. Thank you so much. Ephesians um, chapter 5.18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is Paul talking into the context of Ephesus. He could well have been talking to us, right? He said there's a better way to live. And in Ephesus, it was basically, you know, worship of Artemis God and cult prostitution and drunkenness and orgies and dot, dot, dot. It was actually creating a huge amount of pain and injustice and inequality, right? He said there is a better way to live and it's be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And let me unpack that last little phrase. Um, It's present passive imperative. If you like your grammar, you'll love that. Present passive imperative. Present, it means now. Like, I, I want to sort of like pass on urgency. Like Paul says, like now. Like what the Spirit's doing in this nation, in, in this city, you need to jump on board now. Don't wait for a better opportunity. Don't wait until you're ready. Don't wait until you've moved house and got the job. Like don't wait for dot, dot, dot now. It's happening now. Now is the time. Jump on board what the Spirit's doing now. So it's present. Secondly, it's passive. That's really good news. You don't have to do any of the hard work. Um, God will do the filling. You just have to do the receiving which is why our ministry sort of model is just standing there like lemons doing this. Uh, It's a way of saying, God, you are the one that's active in ministry and we are the ones that are in receive mode. You can resist the Spirit and Paul talks about that. Um, But if you're willing to go with it, you stand and say, God, I don't need to strive for this. I don't need to uh, like earn anything. I'm just going to receive because you are the one that's active. You will do the filling. So it's present, it's passive. God does the active bit and it's an imperative. In other words, it's a command. It isn't Paul giving wisdom. Hey, guys, things are messy in Ephesus. You know, the cult prostitution that goes with the, the worship of Artemis. And, and there's this happening. And dot, dot, dot. My advice, maybe, is let's create a space where we can open ourselves to the Spirit. He says, no, it needs to happen now. God will be active. You be passive. And it is a command. I'm telling you, for the sake of the world, feast at the table. For the sake of the world, be filled with the Holy Spirit. For the sake of the world, drink deeply of the well that leads to life. So come empty, come thirsty, get ready, draw close, be filled.